Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. everyone and welcome Jonathan Nelson, Managing Director of HF Capital and Founder CEO of Hackers and Founders. Nurse turned into software engineer turned into investor. Let's learn how this all happened. Jonathan, thank you so much to be here with us. It's amazing how when we find our path to venture capital, no matter where we started, we'll go through our uh, trajectory until we we fulfill our passion of being a, an investor. It seems that your trajectory is pretty much what we are talking about. Someone that had no clue at the beginning of uh, what a VC could be, but managed to go all, all the way until you found uh, your place as an investor and as a venture capital. And uh, it's, uh, I found uh, amazing that uh, you describe yourself on Twitter as a hacker, a founder, an investor, and an activist. And I'm very curious to learn from you how you find yourself using each of these hats. Happy to tell you this story. It's a strange story, and it's this is the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing with my life. So I grew up in Central America playing soccer with kids without shoes while my parents did missionary work during the 70s and 80s. When we came back to the States, even though I'd been programming since I was seven or eight years old and helping my dad run a database um, for you know people who would support their mission and support their work when I was seven or eight, nine years old, um, it came time for me to go to college and dad didn't want me majoring in computer science, but he was pretty sure that computers were video game machines back in 1990. So I said, yes, sir. And my parents strongly suggested that I become a nurse like my mother. And it was really helpful when we were in the jungles of Central America that my mom knew how to treat malaria and that sort of stuff. And so it, it kind of made sense to me at the time, even though that wasn't my passion. So I went to nursing school and then I, uh, went on to seminary. Um, I dropped out very quickly, just found out that that was not for me. And I found myself working as an emergency room and trauma nurse in inner city Chicago for a number of years. Ended up moving to Boston, Los Angeles, uh, tried a bunch of different things on the side, kind of trying to find my passion. And then um, I decided to go back to school for software engineering. And I started reading that you could sell like ones and zeros and you could sell code and you could sell apps. And I was like, how does that work? That's amazing. And then I learned that you can sell a company that sold software. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could sell a company for like $1 million. And then I could like retire early or something. And so we moved to Silicon Valley, my wife and I. Um, I got a job at a hospital a couple of miles away from Google's HQ. At one point, I was a manager of 700 people there. And then that was three nights a week. And then four nights a week, I was coding and driving my wife crazy, talking about startups all the time. And honestly, it was her very wise decision to kick me out of the house one night a month um, to go and talk to somebody else about startups that we started this meetup group called Hackers and Founders. And our first event was just five people and me in a bar talking about startups. And then the next month, there were eight people. And then the next month, there were 13 and then... 35. And within a couple of years, we were having two to 300 people, uh, an event show up at a bar. And people were coming from all over the world. You know, you visit Silicon Valley, what do you do? Like, where do you go? You, you look at Google's campus, and you're like, okay, there's campus. And you look at PayPal or, you know, Facebook, and you're like, there's Facebook and Uber, and there's Uber. And then what else do you do? Well, you go to a meetup, and you hang out in a bar. And people would start coming up to me saying, hey, Jonathan, this is pretty awesome. Um, can I do something like this back home in my hometown? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so in the last 15 years, we've had people run Hackers and Founders events in over 200 cities. And over 350,000 tech entrepreneurs have attended our events. And weirdly enough, like my parents, when they did missionary work, 
1967, they got into a car from Minnesota, which is in the northern part of the United States, and they drove to Costa Rica. So it was like 3,000, 4,000 miles. Why? Because they believed that they could make a difference. And here I am in a bar in Silicon Valley, and I have friends who are driving from Alaska down to Silicon Valley or visiting from Estonia and coming to Silicon Valley. Why? Because they believe that they can build a product that can make a difference. And I was like, I've seen these people before. They're zealots. Like entrepreneurs are zealots. I get zealots because my parents were zealots. I'm a zealot. Like, you know, we're zealots about zealots about different things. But a um, people started asking for help at our meetups, and you know, being a helpful guy, I'm a nurse. You know, I like to help people, and so we started kind of connecting people, putting them in touch with kind of the right resources. And eventually, we formalized that after talking to some investors in Silicon Valley. We started off kind of as an accelerator program, you know, once, twice a year, we'd kind of have a program where companies would pay us a bit of stock and we would help them kind of provide advice. And we hosted a demo day and that morphed into, I didn't like the accelerator model because it felt, you know, three months and then you're out on your butt just felt kind of artificial when, you know, after you raise money, that's when a lot of the hard work of building a company is. And so we started kind of doing things on a rolling basis. And now uh, we've worked with about 75 companies. They've raised a couple hundred million dollars in outside capital. We've had nine acquisitions. And hopefully this next year, we'll have our first IPO or two out of our portfolio. And a lot of it, a lot of it came from, you know, asking people what hurts and how can I help and helping them and Ultimately, that led to them letting us invest in their companies. And, you know, it's been a weird trajectory, but it's all it's all kind of the same thing right, in my mind. It's weird. That's a really cool perspective. And it's funny how looking back and connecting the dots, you can see the real influence that uh, your parents had in your life. And um, no matter what route you chose, you could still apply the helping people. And you were just true to your heart, right? So that's really interesting. And also, so I'd like to learn a little bit about that, about the transferable skills you use as a nurse, right? Not only the impact your parents had on shaping how you look at the world and the way you help, but how can we, what kind of transferable skills can we see that um, from emergency room, trauma emergency room nurse to trauma emergency room helping founders, you know, how, how does that happen? So no transferable skills. I mean, I spent 20 years running around emergency rooms in the middle of the night and all weekend asking people what hurt and how can I help the last 10 years? I've been running around at all hours of the night, getting texts from CEOs saying, Oh my God, Jonathan, my company's about to die. What do I do? And it's really the same process. You, you know, talk to an entrepreneur, like I'm probably not going to, if you're crushing it as a CEO in your specific industry, I'm probably not going to be able to tell you how to do your company better. But if you're, you know, if you're crashing in a specific area, if there's problems that you're having, chances are I've probably had a conversation with someone who can help you. I've been running one of Silicon Valley's largest networking events for over a decade. I know a ton of people. I've had conversations with thousands of tech entrepreneurs and executives and that sort of stuff. So usually we can provide some help. And I still kind of see myself as like a general practitioner and I make referrals to specialists all the time. And so I, it hasn't been that big of a transition for me. Instead of speaking medicalese, I speak like code and softwareese and capital ease because we have like these really specialized languages in the startup world in terms of how investment in the startup world works, in terms of how raising capital works. You know, what is an acquisition? What is an IPO? What is a funding round? All of that stuff. I find myself explaining that to CEOs and founders all the time, much like I used to have to explain to someone at three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night what a heart attack was. 
and what we were going to do to fix their heart attack. And so all of those soft skills have been insanely helpful in kind of what we're doing is as a CEO and an entrepreneur and being able to talk to people and empathize and relate with them. All of that has just been, you know, like kind of shooting fish in a barrel. Um, there's been other things that have been really hard um, in this transition, but those soft skills, I think, have been probably one. It's probably our one of my killer strengths, I would say, or my killer app as a VC um, and as an investor is the soft skills of being able to help people that way. That's amazing because one of the the goals that uh, we put as a development uh, for ourselves at Astella is that everybody has to be a general practitioner in venture capital, which is exactly the vision that you had uh, at that moment. But for me, what uh, what strikes on your trajectory is that uh, building a community and engaging people is hard. I mean, and... Uh, um, Starting with a limited amount of knowledge and learning while building and engaging people is amazing. I mean, could you tell us a little bit about this? Because uh, it's extraordinary what you did. No, I, I mean, the transferable part of my of kind of growing up with missionary parents, I mean, their job was to start communities of people who had shared beliefs and kind of build organizations around them. They started churches, they ran schools, they started seminaries. And all of these are kind of belief driven, you know, faith and hope driven kind of organizations. In tech entrepreneurship, I think of it as kind of a techno religion. Like, There are very few people in the tech entrepreneur world who will put up with the crap that you have to put up with and do this, the crazy things that you have to do as an entrepreneur to get your company off the ground and to sell. Like they have an immense amount of faith and an immense amount of hope. And they are zealots. They are techno-religious zealots. And so I was trained from a very early age to learn how to build communities of faith and of shared belief. And I am now the preacher of entrepreneurship instead of the preacher of kind of my Christian faith. You know, happy to talk about that if you want to, but I don't ever feel the need to. But, you know, I, I tend to find that what resonates with tech entrepreneurs is is talking in the belief and the hope that, yes, we can make money and we can do that. But also a lot of entrepreneurs, they tend to have like a mission that they want to solve too. Most entrepreneurs have an impact that they actually want to see in the world. And, you know, if I agree with that impact, like, yeah, let's, let's work on helping you create your vision together. And how do we help you build this organization? And, You know, how do we help change the world to, you know, a better place and how you actually want to see it? And so that's been pretty straightforward for me. My wife had a similar kind of background and she's my partner with this. And so it's something that she and I have just kind of done naturally is kind of like falling off a log. But yeah, I don't hear a whole lot of people have that background and that skill set in this industry. Uh, yeah, I totally see how that's what differentiates you, right? And when you have a mission and you're aligned with it, that's how you create impact. And talking about impact, we've learned that you were an important member um, in the first White House demo day in, in back in 2015 with President Obama, focus on minority-driven startups. So tell us a little bit about that experience. So again, my background in healthcare, you know, you do a lot of clinical research in healthcare you innovate and you document and then you publish. And so what I learned in that industry was if you want to do something that's data driven and you want to get the best data possible, you try to remove the sources of bias from your selection process. You know, you have a double blind process when you're enrolling patients into a study. And so when companies first started applying to work with us and kind of applying to our early accelerator program, We just naturally removed names, ages, gender, schools from our application process. And as a result, 75% of our companies have a woman, Hispanic, or African-American founder. And during the Obama administration, they were doing some research on diversity in tech. And they were kind of trying to study that. And we had gotten acquainted with them on some of the stuff that we were doing on immigration and helping immigration for founders 
Um, but they told us that we actually had one of the best track records in Silicon Valley in terms of diversity. And that blew my mind because why should a nurse do anything better than anybody else in kind of the tech industry? But having that outside perspective, like... I just wanted to have the best data that I could and the best selection processes I could. And it was obvious to me that to get the best data and just evaluate the performance of a company for the performance's sake or the performance of a founder, that you just try to need to remove the sources of bias. It turns out that in Silicon Valley, less than 4% of venture-funded startups have a woman founder and less than 1% have an Hispanic or Black founder. So I think Silicon Valley has some, I don't think it's mean intentions, but I think that there's some institutionalized racism <laughs> and sexisms that are kind of baked into how we do it. I don't think, I haven't come across too many VCs that I would say that person's completely racist or sexist, but I do think that there are some institutionalized kind of structural issues in how we select companies. And one of them is just you know, you invest in founders that look like the successful founders of the last decade. So you're looking for people who look like Zuck or who look like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Travis Klanick or, you know, Ev or Naval Ravikant. And most of those are white dudes. And, you know, how many successful women unicorn founders are there right now off the top of my head i can't think of a whole lot and so if you're selecting for what happened in the last decade or two you're just going to start repeating the same patterns over and over again your pattern match is going to be the same but if you actually want to evaluate for what's coming next and for outliers and for black swans in this industry I really think that you have to take a hard look at how you actually select companies and how you actually make investments. And I really think that you need to work on having a diverse team, which is I'm thrilled that, you know, both of you have a venture fund. I mean, that's amazing. We need more women in this industry. You know, Jonathan, I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about uh, how to reduce uh, or increase diversity in, in venture capital. And I've uh, one of my studies, I ended up uh, knowing that the orchestras in some orchestras in the U.S. uses like blind testing to listen because it doesn't matter, right? You have to just uh, listen to what uh, to how the sound goes and not how, how is the people behind it. And uh, we never thought about uh, doing anything blind on VC because the relationship and the engagement with the entrepreneur has to be very uh, strong. But the way that we try to eliminate the bias is, is really uh, bringing and having more women in, in our team. And um, it's amazing how um, what you're saying in terms of uh, benchmark and in terms of model, because I think that this is not only related to venture capital, it is related to all aspects of our lives, not having a model in many aspects of our lives. Uh, how, I mean, uh, you don't have the heroes. If you think about uh, the journeys of the heroes, now we have some of the, the women coming out of uh, Star Wars, but before, heroes were only men. So how could you uh, motivate or inspire women that they could also be heroes in, in this world, right? So it's impressive that what you're mentioning, because I totally agree with your view. So moving to another very interesting aspect of your life, I I was reading about you on an interview that you gave to Forbes and uh, you mentioned that, that uh, VC model was trapped with a lack of liquidity and you decided back there to do a 40-act mutual fund. And uh, I also, in my life, I had uh, the, the opportunity to understand and, and uh, research other kinds of uh, ways to bring liquidity to venture capital. So it would be interesting to know your views and and how you came up with the solution of, uh, of the 40 Act. So my advocacy ended up leading to our really doing a lot of research on access to capital outside of tech hubs like Silicon Valley. And how that got involved or how that got started was we were involved with the Obama administration doing some advocacy on immigration reform and communicating to them some of the problems that we were having with, with founders and CEOs getting deported out of Silicon Valley. And they started talking to us about what they were doing on equity crowdfunding. 
And being kind of a community-driven organization, I was like, this is brilliant. Like, what if our founding, what if our communities of founders could fund each other's companies? Like, what if Women 2.0 could fund each other's companies? What if the Latino Startup Alliance could fund each other's companies? Like, yes, how do I do this? How do I help? So we submitted a bunch of comments to the SEC on equity crowdfunding. I ended up after that, we were quoted about 50 times in the regs. Um, and I ended up being asked to become an advisor to the SEC on capital formation because I was having a conversation with one of the SEC commissioners and I asked her, you know, what are her challenges and what, what sucks, what hurts? And she said, we really don't understand why Silicon Valley gets so much venture capital and why other tech hubs like Chicago, Atlanta, Denver, Detroit don't get capital. Could you help us do some research on that? I'm like, yes, how do I do that? So I spent two years going back and forth to Washington, D.C., and I did a study for Commissioner Stein on why so much venture capital gets invested in Silicon Valley. And the answer isn't really obvious. The answer is kind of an obscure way of how venture capital works, that VCs and angels only make money when companies that they invest in get acquired by Google for a billion dollars, or if they IPO, because that's the only two ways that VCs actually make money with kind of our current model of venture capital. And the problem is, is that 85 to 90% of all of the world's tech mergers and acquisitions happen in and around Silicon Valley. So if I'm an entrepreneur in Sao Paulo, what are my chances or in Buenos Aires or in Nairobi or Lagos, Nigeria or Amsterdam? my chances of raising venture capital are usually directly proportional to my ability to convince a VC that I'm going to be able to sell my company for a couple billion dollars or that I'm going to be able to IPO my company. And, you know, acquisitions tend to happen through people that you know. It's a very close network-driven kind of thing. And it's, that's why it's also concentrated in Silicon Valley. And so we started looking at other ways to design a fund and how do we actually increase acquisitions and IPOs in markets like Latin America, where I grew up. And that's why we started looking at this mutual fund model. It turns out that doing something like that in the United States is extremely expensive. It would cost probably $5 million just in legal and accounting to launch that fund on the NASDAQ. On the London Stock Exchange, it probably costs about 20 to 30% of that. So about 500 to 750K all in, you can actually launch a publicly traded startup venture mutual fund. So it's been a long process. We're still in the process of doing that. Our investment bank wants us to kind of finish off a couple of IPOs from our existing first few funds to really prove that we can take companies from Latin America, invest in them and take them to IPO. But we're in the process of doing that. But I I really think that for venture capital and to really solve this issue of income inequality in emerging markets and in Western markets, you know, we really need to start rethinking how we actually structure our funds and how we actually start making an investments and how do we actually help our funds investors make money and how do we actually improve our returns and improve our liquidity and that sort of stuff. And that's where I've been spending the last couple of years is obsessing about these problems. That's my zealotry and my activism is if we solve this problem, we grow entire economies. Like we provide capital and millions and millions of jobs, good paying jobs to people in relatively poor countries. Um, That's a problem that I will work 20 years on solving. So give us more of the scoop on that. We want to dig a little bit deeper and learn more. So you explained a little bit about working with the London Stock Exchange, right, to take LATAM companies to IPO. But if you can explain to us a little bit more about this process, what do you look into? What would be the ideal uh, companies that fit the match? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so it's, again, I'm a geek and I'm a nerd and I'm a software engineer. And it turns out that like there's code that runs how companies operate. That's like legal code and corporate law code. And governments are kind of like the corporate law operating systems. 
and you have different versions in like Europe and the United Kingdom and in Latin America. And a lot of how this code was developed actually goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. So for instance, British colonialism was outsourced to a company back 400 years ago, the East Indies Trading Company. And how that company raised money to colonize other countries was on the London Stock Exchange. So like you had this multinational corporation called the East Indies Trading Company with its own army (laughs) backed by the British Empire that went creating colonies all over. And when they created colonies, they left behind like shareholder technologies. When Latin America was colonized, we were colonized by, you know, kings and queens. And they did they did a direct colonization and a conquering. They did not bring with them shareholder technologies. And so how companies get developed in Latin America are very much on like a Spanish and Portuguese model, which is 400 years of history there. And how investment happens in like the former English colonies is different. In the United States, you think of growing shareholder value. That is one of the biggest mandates in a company. So VCs in Silicon Valley will buy stock or buy shares in a company, and then they hold them for five years, 10 years, 15 years, until they can sell that stock again, i.e. the company IPOs, and you sell the stock publicly to anyone who wants to buy it on a stock exchange, or you sell it um, to Google when Google buys your company. In Latin America, there just isn't a culture of buying stock. And so a lot of the pioneers, the VC pioneers like you guys in Brazil, have really been leading the charge on how do we actually buy stock. And so the challenge is, is how do VCs in Brazil get the chance to sell their stock a second time? How, you know, how many companies, I know that, was it Get Ninjas just IPO'd on B3 on the on the Bospa? And so like that's fantastic. But the London Stock Exchange reached out about a year and a half ago and they said, Hey Jonathan, do you know any companies in Latin America that would be interested in IPOing? And I was like, Well, yeah, but none of them are doing a hundred million dollars a year in revenue. And they're like, No, 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 we have a different model. And I was like, Really? And so in London because there has not been a big venture ecosystem, like venture capital in London has only been like the last 10 or 15 years that it's really started to take off. The London Stock Exchange has been the primary way for companies to raise capital to grow their company. And you see the same sort of thing in Canada and in Australia. Like you don't have very strong venture ecosystems in those markets, but you do have much more capital being raised on stock exchanges. And so in London, for a company to IPO, if they're a British company, if they're doing about $5 million a year in revenue, if they're growing about 50% year over year, that's a great IPO for them. Like they could raise $10 million at like a 50 or an $80 million valuation. In the United States, like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange won't even give you a meeting unless you're doing one to $200 million a year in revenue. Like it's, you have to have like 20 times the amount of revenue in the US to be able to IPO. And the costs for doing an IPO in London, because they're kind of geared towards helping smaller companies list and then growing on the exchange as public companies, the costs are about 20% of what it would take to IPO in the United States. In the US, you're looking at two to $3 million in legal and accounting fees to, to get listed on one of the US stock exchanges. In the UK, you're looking at about like three to 500K all in. And so we started looking, like who else is doing this? And at this point, we've talked to 18 stock exchanges around the world. And we have kind of a short list of like three or four that are open to working with international companies. And so hopefully by the end of this year um, or this winter um, in the United States, we'll actually have our first IPO or two from Latin America that'll be listed on either the London Stock Exchange or on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And what we're looking for is companies that are growing, you know, as a Latin American company, the the bar is gonna be higher because you're less well-known And so they prefer companies to be doing 10 to $20 million a year in revenue, growing about 50% year over year. 
they like companies that are almost profitable. They like companies that are selling. And so those are the types of companies that we're looking for. And our goal is to help them list on the London Stock Exchange. And after we do a couple of those, then we will take our whole venture fund and we will IPO that ourselves. So learning how the code of capital works and like the code of incorporation and that sort of stuff has led us to try and hack kind of access to capital for companies around the globe. And, you know, that's the activist and zealot kind of part of me coming through. That's very interesting. Um, as an evolution to the ecosystem as a whole, would you expect uh, the public uh, market to be disrupted someday in the future? Like, because uh, we see initiatives as uh, like a Carta or the, you also mentioned about the ICOs. How would you expect uh, the public market uh, um, to survive or not, uh, or all of these alternatives to be stronger in the future? Like, if I had a magic wand and I could change the world, we would have a global digital stock certificate. As it happens, because companies and shares are governed by an individual country where the company is incorporated, we have about 185 different sets of laws around the globe of what a company is, what shares in that company are. And so selling stock across borders is incredibly inefficient. So if I take a company from Argentina to IPO in London, I can do that. But for people in Argentina to buy the stock on that company on the London Stock Exchange, they would probably have to pay 3% to 5% brokerage fee for every trade that they wanted to do. And so what I would love to be able to do is to build a version of a digital stock certificate on a blockchain and be able to sell that kind of around the globe. And in 10 years, that's what I hope to be doing. Just in my opinion, like an entrepreneur in Brazil or an entrepreneur in Peru or an entrepreneur in Kenya should have the same opportunity to get access to capital in global capital markets as someone who grew up in Palo Alto. Like not doing that in my mind is just stupid. But right now, It's these capital networks are, you know, kind of locked into kind of country rules and that sort of stuff. And so I believe that, yes, stock exchanges in the financial ecosystem in the next 10 to 20 years is going to face a huge disruption. You know, what Brazil did in terms of giving, I forget the name of it, but it's uh, the digital wallet that they have that the central bank ended up issuing. That's created an enormous amount of fintech innovation in Brazil. I, you know... 40% to 50% of central banks in the world are looking at ways of creating their own digital currencies, all digital currencies. And so the financial services ecosystem, as we see it, is the landscape is going to be changing dramatically in the next 10 to 20 years. And that's where we're pretty excited about fintech. I think there's a ton of innovation that needs to happen there. Great, Jonathan. We would love to learn a little bit more about Hack Fund, right? What is your thesis? What kind of companies do you look for? How do you engage with these entrepreneurs? So tell us a little bit about that. So the life of VVC, generally entrepreneurs think of them as just investing and investing, investing. But the half that the entrepreneurs don't see is that the VC has to raise money. And so they're pitching and pitching and pitching all the time. So this past year, we have been looking at who is actually, who would be interested in investing in like emerging markets in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, because this is where we see some of the best innovation, like just brute innovation happening in things like financial services, payments, that sort of stuff. These markets are massive. They have, these companies have very little competition. The problem is, is how do you convince wealthy families When I used to be a nurse, <laughs> you know, eight years ago, <laughs> how do I convince wealthy families to let me invest $200 million worth of their money? I just, I've decided that I don't really have that network. How do I convince pension funds to let me invest $200 million of their money? I don't have the pedigree to get there yet. So we've been targeting corporates and we just signed a partnership with the Union of Arab Banks, which is a trade association of 350 of the largest banks in the Middle East. 
And we're helping them with their innovation program. And as part of that, they actually asked us to help set up a venture fund for them. And I was like, oh, hey, we want to take this fund to IPO. And would some of your banks be interested in participating? Like, yes, but it has to be a fintech fund. I'm like, excellent. We will launch a fintech fund for you. So we also found a hedge fund that was quite interested in investing in us. We spent about five months kind of going back and forth on due diligence. And they just came back to us like a couple of weeks ago and said, we're not going to be able to invest. We're really sorry. Just we think that the market's a little frothy right now. So, you know, the fund is a little bit on the back burner right now. Our investment bank, after hearing that, said, you know what, do some of these IPOs first, and then we will totally take your funds to IPO. So the idea, though, the core thing, and we'll probably do it later on this winter over the first part of next year, is the fund itself raises money through an IPO, which is you go to an investment bank, they raise a bunch of money from you, and then you list your stock on a stock exchange, the London Stock Exchange, and anyone who can buy stock on a London Stock Exchange can buy, sell, and trade your stock. And then we're a VC, we would go in and invest in companies. But my job as a fund manager is to make sure that my share price goes up. How do I do that? I have to buy stock in companies that are going to grow in value through growing their sales. So we have to invest in companies that grow revenue. And we will invest in companies that are fintechs because this is what some of our anchor investors are going to want. And so we will be investing in fintech companies and emerging markets. We will do seed checks from 100K on the low end all the way up to, you know, Series B checks of $20 million on the high end. Our thesis is that if you need more money than that, let's take you to IPO sooner rather than later. And let's actually take you to IPO. And so we have probably about 15 to 18 companies right now that would be ready and that we would be very comfortable kind of writing a check to and investing in. Uh, the challenge is you got to have the money to be able to invest. And I haven't been able to close that yet. And so hold my beer. I'll be back. Let me take some of these companies to IPO and then our investment bank. And they're kind of the gatekeepers of this whole process. Then our investment bank would be more than happy to actually help us IPO our fund ourselves because then we've proved out the entire model. That yes, you can invest in companies in Brazil, in Latin America, in Africa, and that they can IPO. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my God, that's a, such a plan. How the valuations that we have today um, influences or help or, or not uh, your plans? Because everybody somehow thinks about uh, if we are living any kind of a discrepancy uh, valuations uh, levels and uh a lot of uh, venture capitals now uh, seems to be giving up uh, some of the investments that they were nurturing because of uh, high levels of valuation. So how do you view that? And if you have any concerns of being in such a high uh, environment, uh, considering your plans? So like the weird thing about valuation is that it's, you know, in venture capital is that it's very geographically specific. Like we had two companies in our portfolio that were in the travel industry, both of them doing about the same amount of revenue, both of them about the same start. One was had moved to Silicon Valley from Argentina and one was in Mexico. The one in Mexico spent nine months to raise $400,000 at like a $3.5 million valuation. It was brutal. It was a really hard raise. The other one that was in Silicon Valley raised $900,000 in 10 days at like an eight or a $9 million valuation. And so it's a three hour flight between Mexico and Silicon Valley, but that three hour flight, the Mexican company had a 70% discount on their valuation compared to the Silicon Valley company. And so one of the reasons that I'm very interested in taking companies public sooner is because once you're listed on a stock exchange, Like your valuation tends to be kind of globalized. You know, the comparisons are made to other public companies on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, and on the London Stock Exchange. And you're not necessarily thought of as a Mexican tribal tech company or a Brazilian fintech company. You are now a fintech company that's just doing $80 million a year in revenue. And you're growing two to 300% year over year. 
What I've found as well, and I suspect this is probably going to be the case for the next two to three years, that interest rates are central banks have interest rates being really, really low right now. And so a lot of pension funds can't make money when they buy bonds. Like in Europe, you're getting like a half a percent to 1% yield on a bond that you buy. In the US, I think treasuries are like one to one and a half percent. So a lot of big investors, the institutional investors, are going into public stock markets, which means that public market valuations are a lot higher than they are in private markets right now. So I would argue that it makes more sense for a company to go public sooner right now than try to get Sequoia to invest $100 million in you at a $1 billion valuation. I suspect, and my hypothesis is, is that public markets will actually reward companies. And truly, if you take a SaaS company in Silicon Valley right now, standard valuation would be 10 to 15x revenues. Public markets right now are valuing that same company at like 25 to 35x revenues. And so your valuation is this for the same company would be about two and a half times higher as a public company. So roll that back in terms of VCs and emerging markets. One of the reasons why valuations are so much lower in Latin America than they are in Silicon Valley is because in Latin America, we have to worry about what's my exit going to be like, you know? And so we discount that risk and we price that risk in when we make investments. But if we start to truly develop a global kind of ecosystem and valuations start to kind of normalize around the world, I believe that valuations will eventually climb up. And entrepreneurs are always going to push for a higher valuation because they read that companies in Silicon Valley, where they get all their news about startups, are valued at X, Y, or Z. And VCs and emerging markets are like, dude, where are you going to sell your company for that price? Well, I think the answer is we need to sell the companies in London or in Toronto or in Australia and not necessarily think about selling companies on, you know, the, the Mexican stock exchange. Like you're just not going to get a decent valuation there. Uh, does that answer your question? Totally. It makes total sense. And uh, a very interesting point of view and strategy, because at the end of the day, what we see is that uh, the public markets tell the rules for everybody. So what you're saying is stick to the rules as soon as possible. It makes total sense. Incredible. Very interesting view. And the point is um, what what we see that the discussion between uh, entrepreneurs uh, on uh, analyzing the alternatives is um, of not going public is how expensive it is and how they would have to change the dynamics of their companies to suit to the, the demands of the public market. So those are, but it seems that those trade-offs are becoming lower each, each day as the alternative markets uh, develops, like uh, what, what you mentioned in Canada, London, and, and so forth. So it makes a lot of sense, a lot of sense. Yeah, right now, like my goal with this like, like IPO services that we do, it's like right now there's about 500 companies worldwide that are worth a billion dollars that are waiting to IPO. It's about two and a half to three trillion dollars worth of companies just waiting to IPO. And you pretty much have to be at a billion dollar valuation to IPO in the United States. If we can decrease the cost to IPO, if we can automate this process, if we can get companies to market at a market capitalization, if we can get them public, at a valuation of $100 million, we've just added another 10 to 13,000 companies that could potentially IPO worldwide. And that's about $14 trillion worth of market cap. And so, um, you know, our goal now is to take companies, if you're at a $100 million valuation or more, or you think your next round would be at that, let's seriously consider taking you to IPO. And then for seed stage VCs, you know, you don't have to sell your stock at the IPO. You can still hold it for another couple of years, but you have the option to sell your stock down if you want to. You have the option to hand the stock over to your LPs if you want to. And having that optionality, I think, is going to be really help a lot of earlier stage VCs across emerging markets finally start to be able to convince their LPs like, no, this shit really works. I told you so. And here's the proof. 
I really think that we need to start doing that more as an ecosystem and emerging markets and in Latin America to really be able to prove the venture capital kind of case. Um, so that's kind of our goal is to, to really start decreasing those costs around the board and just start working with capital markets to help companies go to IPO earlier. So Jonathan, um, you've been building this case for the last uh, few years, and um, I'd love to add another layer on top of that, right? Which is the moment in time. So we're heading now to the end of the pandemics. I mean, you're in California, so you're you're a little bit ahead of us, but we see that even in the developing world, we'll able to control, have a little bit better control the disease until the end of the year. And um, how do you see the scenario for venture capital and innovation around the world as we we come to an end of the foreseen pandemics? And um, what are the trends or patterns that you foresee going forward? Do you believe that the trends of the case in opening up to alternative ways of raising capital is part of this trends and does the pandemic scenario and what we've lived in the last year fit into this and what are the trends in general that that you're seeing i mean i've always been excited about companies that sell ones and zeros because <laughs> copying and pasting ones and zeros and scaling those sales are really like that's a relatively trivial problem the hardest problem is figuring out what software people actually want to buy and what technical innovation people want to buy after that scaling that is a relatively solved problem. I think that during the pandemic, the rest of the world has realized, holy shit, this software thing, this digital collaboration thing is really important. And a lot of large companies are finally starting to get religion about we need to do this or we're going to die. Like, The pandemic has been a Darwinian process in that companies that have adapted to online first or online only have done so much better than companies that have really been focused on just brick and mortar experience. And across the board, you know, payments companies, e-commerce companies, you know, HR tech companies, I'm seeing so many tech companies that have just been booming. You know, a number of them have died, sadly, unfortunately. A number of these companies have been booming. And now the economy is starting to pick up. So you've had companies, the digital software tech companies, accelerating throughout the pandemic. And now the rest of the economy is going to start picking up. I think things are going to be, we're in for a really good couple of years in like the tech and venture ecosystem. You know, the London Stock Exchange has had more IPOs in the past six months than they had in the previous couple of years. You know, a combination of Brexit finally being solved and the pandemic, a lot of IPOs are happening. You're seeing a much more diverse way to get to IPO. You're seeing SPACs and start to kind of appear in the United States as a way to get to IPO, you're seeing direct listings. And so it's not, it's not just one size fits all anymore. You're seeing a much more diverse way of growing companies and of exiting companies and of raising capital for companies. And you're seeing a ton of companies really doing phenomenally well during the pandemic. And I think corporates are finally starting to catch up, which means they're just going to be buying a lot more software and they're going to be buying more software companies um, because of that. You know, the union of Arab banks is asking us for help on their digital innovation and digital transformation strategy. Like that's not anything that I would have thought I would have been doing three years ago. But, you know, the Middle East is a really fascinating market. It's very similar to Latin America in many respects. And a lot of the fintech that's been happening in Latin America, I suspect we'll find a lot of equivalents in the Middle East. And I suspect that there can be copycats from Latin America being replicated in the Middle East. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm excited about that market. Also, I think Latin America is probably one of the leaders in just kind of like core fintech innovation right now um, worldwide. I really think that we have some pretty, very innovative companies. And I think the next three to four years, we're going to have some really interesting IPOs and really interesting exits from that. I think e-commerce 
you know, what if I don't go to a store unless I absolutely have to, I just want everything delivered to my home last mile logistics. I mean, you know, uh, corner shop just got acquired by Uber, which is a Chilean company just got acquired by Uber for 3.5 billion. Like, you know, eBanks is, I think, an IPO in the next six to 12 months. They're talking about it. So I think that we're going to start to see some really big exits. And I really think that that's going to dramatically transform the reality on the ground for a lot of entrepreneurs. You're also going to have a lot of those early employees from those companies spin out and say, hey, I'm 30 years old. I'm rich. I'm going to do this again. Like, that was fun. You know, they'll take a break, they'll take a year or two off, but then they'll go back at it and they'll do it again. And that's what happens in Silicon Valley. It's been happening for 30 or 40 years. People have a big exit, they take some time off and they say, fuck it, let me start another company. I think that we're starting we're starting to see that with some of the Latin American ecosystem, African ecosystem, I think is similar. Um, you're starting to see that in, in the Middle East with a number of kind of big exits that have happened recently as well. You know, there have been 25 new venture funds started in Saudi Arabia in the last year and a half. And the weird thing about Saudi Arabia, half of the software engineers are women. Because in the Middle East, when you had to have your head covered, no one could see if you were, like, if you're on the internet, no one could see if you're a dude or not. So there's going to be a lot of women-led tech companies in Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East coming out, which is really freaking cool. Like, that's subversive as hell. Like, how do I support that? Like more of that, please. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, one of the main reasons why I, I am so passionate about um, the venture capital and the entire ecosystem is that uh, we now have a chance of uh, changing the way that uh, Latin America people do business in terms of uh, being more transparent, being more fair. And uh, it could change a lot of uh, aspects of uh, how not only business, but how politics goes and uh And so I was uh, listening to what you were saying and uh, the alignment of views. I'm curious to have your views on what could happen to LATAM in five to 10 years from now. I mean, if you have uh, any special views or wishful thinking. <laughs> you know, I grew up in playing soccer with kids without shoes. Like I grew up around, you know, extreme poverty. And I knew that I had this immense privilege of a U.S. passport. And, you know, we would go to our, you know, upper middle class houses, even though my dad, when we were in the States, we were you know, poor, <laughs> we were in Latin America, we were rich. And it was going back and forth that you just, it was this weird cognitive dissonance that happened all the time. But how does a country like Honduras, you know, advance and solve its poverty problem when they're exporting bananas and coffee beans and importing cars and computers? Like, You cannot ever get ahead. You cannot sell enough bananas in the world to be able to do that. What's happening now is we're actively mentoring a group of like 20 startups through the Honduras Digital Challenge right now. And these people are selling ones and zeros. And guess what? When you sell ones and zeros on the internet, no one knows that you're not a dude. No one knows that you're in Honduras. No one knows. It's just you're a global company. And so my hope is that Latin America, we can develop this knowledge economy. We can start helping these companies get access to capital. We can help them start selling ones and zeros. And Latin America is going to change when something is more profitable than, you know, corruption and cocaine and the narco traffic. You know, what has a better profit margin than corruption or like narco trafficking? Um, You're looking at, you know, natural resources extraction, oil and gas industry. You're looking at finance and you're looking at tech. And you know what? Any nerd with a laptop who learns how to code can build a tech company. And so when I speak at these conferences, I'm like, look, you can change your country by building a tech company selling ones and zeros. And you can start to become, we will start to have, you know, more and more wealthy and well-to-do and relatively powerful people in our Latin American ecosystem who have grown through a meritocracy, a relative meritocracy of being able to actually get rich through building a company, as opposed to, you know, having been in a family that, you know, has wealth that has been in the family for generations. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the balance of power is going to start to shift towards tech entrepreneurs. Um, you're seeing that in the United States and you're seeing Congress respond to that. I think you're going to have that as well, but I think it's a good tension to have. 
And in Latin America, you know, we'll resolve corruption problems when everything is digital payments. You know, it's when things are, when you have, when you move money digitally, guess what? That transaction is in a database somewhere. And that transaction can be traced. When you have cash, it's really hard to trace cash. Um, you know, 40% of our people in Latin America have bank accounts. We need to get that up to 80 or 90% of the people. You know, we need to decrease the cost of, you know, debt, you know, uh, you know, loan sharks. My dad was telling me about this lady in our church in Honduras in the 70s. And she, her job, her business was she would go to the market and people would come and they would borrow money for her on Monday. They'd take that money, they'd go out, they'd buy a bunch of fruit, they'd sell it at the open air market. On Friday, they would pay her two to one what they had borrowed from her on Monday. Then they'd take that money home on the weekend, they'd spend it or whatever. And then on Monday, they'd go back and borrow money from her again. She was doing 100% a week. And so that translates to a four to 5,000% APR interest rate. Like, that's absurd. And so when we get more companies in and starting to compete on lowering their interest rates to provide capital to these small businesses, I think we're going to have more successful small businesses. Um, at least that's my hope. So those are things that I'm really hopeful for in Latin America, decreased corruption, more widespread prosperity, better jobs across the board, less corruption. And again, these are things that I'll be working on for like the next 20 years. Jonathan, this conversation is so inspiring. And you know that when, you know, you just open up your perspectives and I have so many more questions that uh, I would like to ask. And, um, but what, what stands out is like how aligned you are with your mission ever since the beginning. And, you know, as you say, 20 years ahead, this is still what I'm going to be working on. So I'd love to keep this conversation, but I, um, maybe we can, we can keep it for another time. I don't want to hold you up any longer, even though I wish I could. <laughs> so I wanted to go on to a, a final icebreaker before we part ways for now. So just, you know, uh, if you could quickly just share with us something you are currently excited about and something that is currently scaring you. Good questions. Something that scares me. Our political system in the United States the last four years has really scared me. Like we elected a Chavista for four years. Like we elected kind of your, you know, Latin American kind of strong man for a couple of years. And there's still part of our country that really wants to go that way. And that scares me because I grew up with that. And, you know, in the 20 years my family lived in Central America, I think there were 35 coup d'etats, you know. And so I, we have a family WhatsApp channel and all my nieces and nephews, there's 18 of them, I was like, hey, congratulations on your first coup on January 6th when there was the insurrection and they invaded Congress. And ha, ha, ha. But no, that really sucks. <laughs> so that's what I'm scared about and worried about. What's exciting to me? You know what? I've been coding more like the last three months. We're building some software to kind of help streamline this whole IPO process. And God, I've missed it. It's just so rewarding to not have to go out and pitch investors day after day after day. And it's so rewarding to like just sit in front of your computer and to code and to fix a bug. And, ah, oh, I have a new feature. Ah, oh, I have, you know, we've added this. And every couple of days I can show the team kind of like new stuff that I built. And it's just been a lot of fun and it's been a great break for me. So I'm excited about building ones and zeros that we can try to sell. I'm worried about kind of the state of our political system. And it's not just the U.S. It's been happening globally. There's been a lot of... Like social media has really led to a lot of weird political kind of situations around the globe. And that scares me as well. So, and I'm also excited. The last thing is I'm excited about talking with you guys and I'm excited about your fund. It's amazing. This conversation excited us a lot. I mean, because it's so interesting to have someone without views on different ecosystems and uh, the deep, uh, deep knowledge that you have in Latin America and how our common passion will change the landscape over the next years is really exciting. I mean, and and, uh, and this conversation indeed could go on and on forever. I mean, but I do hope to have the opportunity to continue um, talking to you and deepening our thoughts. I enjoy it so much, Jonathan. Thank you so much, so much. <laughs>
Thank you, Jonathan. Always pleasant to talk to you. Always learned so much with you. So thank you for that. It was an absolute delight. And if there's anything that I can do to help you guys out with your fund moving forward, if you guys need help in Silicon Valley, please let us know. We know a ton of people and I love what you're doing and I love your mission and vision as well. And, you know, happy to collaborate and happy to continue talking whenever you guys want to. We'll co-invest together. <laughs> For sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.